we had pretty awesome worship. I didn't want to stop. <laughs> All right. Good evening, everyone. Tonight falls on me to go over chapters 16, 17, 18 from our book on being a servant of God. Um, if you, you know, you've read through it, you know that they're rather, now they don't really follow the same topic, but actually they do if we dig into them. And we're going to try to tie everything together tonight. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together to become the men you want us to be. In particular, men of servants of you, Father, that dedicate our lives to your glory and to your kingdom. What we were called to be from the very beginning, priests in a sense. And so, Father, tonight, pour your spirit upon us that we may hear from you, not from me. Because this is for you and you only, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I'd like to start tonight telling you guys kind of a story that I'm sure you're familiar with. And you may be wondering at first, why is he bringing this up? And the event occurred just over 100 years ago, back in, 100 years ago back in April. And that was the maiden voyage of the Royal Mail ship Titanic. She was the largest vessel afloat at that time. We're talking in 1912. It was designed by her owners and by her builders to be a floating palace. She was carefully planned to the last detail based heavily upon the success of a previous ship that the same company owned and built, the Olympic. And they figured the Olympic being that greatest success, that wonderful of a ship, well, the Titanic could only pass her up. And that was the goal of the builders at that time. We fast forward to April 10, 1912. Titanic leaves Liverpool Harbor in a blaze of glory on her maiden voyage. It was a wonderful day. And yet, something weird happened. As she was leaving the dock, she passed a little too close to a couple of ships that were moored on the side. And as she went by, the suction of her passage pulled one of the ships away from the mooring, broke the ropes holding her in, and actually pulled her out to within four feet of a collision. Fortunately, the fast work of a tugboat commander and the captain of the vessel, Captain Edward Smith, prevented a collision from taking place. Had it taken place, there would have probably been a delay of about 24 or so hours, so that what little damage occurred could have been repaired and the ship would keep on going. Captain Smith was the most senior of the White Star Line's captains. Okay? He was their commodore, shall we say. He knew the North Atlantic inside out. He knew exactly what to do where, what course to set, and what action to take when there were reports of ice on the sea. He showed his skill off to the people in this little incident I just mentioned, which was, by the way, noticed by a lot of people on board. So at the next port of call, Cherbourg, on the coast of France, approximately 100 people said, we don't want any part of this, we're getting off. And they did. Okay? Little did they know how such a decision really, truly affected their lives. The press and the public considered the Titanic unsinkable, though the builders never really said that. Uh, they knew the old philosophy, if it can float, it can sink. But they were pretty certain nothing's going to happen. Okay? It was designed in order to be pretty much 
able to meet up with any challenge on the North Atlantic. Um, in fact, really to be honest, safety had been taken so much for granted that the discussion on the number of lifeboats on board the ship took 15 minutes as compared to two hours to discuss the color of a carpet in a first-class lounge. And the final decision was 20 lifeboats for approximately 1,200 people. But this exceeded the minimum requirements of the British Board of Trade, so why worry? Besides, we're not going to need them anyway. This is basically their attitude. Third port of call was Queenstown on the coast of Ireland. When she left on April 11th, Titanic had 2,200 people aboard of all classes, well below her designed capacity of 3,300. One of the passengers was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Andrews. He was basically the one who designed and oversaw the construction of Titanic from the keel on up. He went all over this new ship. Now, he had done the same thing on the Olympic, wanting to make sure he could figure out what was wrong, what was right, what to change on Titanic, what to change or to keep the same. And he was doing the same thing because there was a third ship in the works, another one to be put down later that year, and he wanted to do the same thing. What's working on Titanic? What's good? What's bad? Let's take care of it all. Everything was working great. Everything was running smoothly, no problems whatsoever. The worst thing he could find that there were too many screws on some hooks in one of the cabins. Not bad. As the sun set on April the 14th, 1912, all was well. There were other indications of problems ahead, however. Numerous ice warnings were received by, white, uh, excuse me, by radio from other ships that had traversed the same waters Titanic was headed, and most of these reports did make it up to Captain Smith. However, the last warning radioed in at 11.30 p.m., please note the time, from the ship Californian, which had stopped due to ice 10 miles away from Titanic's position, was ignored. In fact, when it tried to radio in, the wireless operator on Titanic basically interrupted the message saying, shut up, shut up, I'm working. It was a clear moonlit night or moonless night, dead calm, unusual for the North Atlantic. No breakers or waves were visible that might have revealed the existence of any uh, ice to the lookouts in the forward decks. They didn't even have binoculars, so sure they were that there was going to be no trouble. Of course, we all know what happened. At 11.40 p.m., two lookouts spotted a large iceberg dead ahead of the ship. Having received the warning, the officer on deck reversed Titanic's engines and held the helm hard over. For several heart-pounding seconds, the iceberg appeared to move right at him. Recall that a 52,000 boat does not turn or stop on a dime. But finally, it began to move to the right. Titanic was passing it on the left. And it appeared like they were going to make it. But icebergs, only 10% are visible above water. The other 90% is invisible. And a spur apparently hit the side of the Titanic, rumbled along for 300 feet, buckling some hull plates, opening it to the ocean, five watertight compartments on a ship that was built to float at the most with four flooded. Thomas Andrews was apprised of the incident pretty quickly. In fact, very few people really noticed the collision as it happened, despite what you may see on movies. 
He went down to look, and his quick inspection revealed his worst nightmare. Despite all of his planning, all of his designs, the ship was going down. There was, it was a mathematical certainty. Iron doesn't float, and he knew it. To him, this was a crushing blow of catastrophic proportions. Captain Smith was informed of this, and he came to another realization. There were not enough lifeboats for everybody on board. But he quickly acted to do what he could. He ordered his wireless operators to send out a distress call, ordered rockets fired to attract the attention of a ship that was clearly visible 10 miles away, and then ordered all women and children into the lifeboats. Two hours later, Titanic went down, taking over 1,500 people into eternity. The nearest vessel to the tragedy that heard the distress call was the Carpathia. She was commanded by a devout believer. Again, you don't hear this on the movies, but he was a very devout Christian. He prayed most of the trip. As soon as he heard what had happened, he prayed constantly on that bridge that he would make it on time. Captain Arthur Rostron, remember the name. He did everything he could. He even got more speed out of his ship than he thought possible. But he still arrived two hours after the sinking, picking up only 710 survivors on 19 lifeboats. Both Captain Smith and Thomas Andrews went down with their ship. And the investigations that followed, as well as updating some very, or excuse me, many changes were made. Many weaknesses in the system were discovered. Changes were made and how large vessels crossed the Atlantic in winter. And outdated regulations, almost 100-year-old regulations were finally updated, especially concerning the lifeboats. But above all, I brought home the point that nothing was perfect, nothing was unsinkable. Now looking at the event a century later, it's clear it was not a case of people not giving it their all. And true, there were some lapses in judgment here and there, but by themselves, these did not singly cause the sinking. The ship was well planned. It used the latest technology, the building materials that were available at that time. No expense was spared in its construction. And even the lack of lifeboats was justified in that their purpose was really not to put everybody on board, but to ferry them back and forth from the ship to other waiting vessels. The rescue, or the, excuse me, the officers, they did their jobs. The crew worked exactly as they were trained to do. And yet the ship still sunk. Using hindsight, there were a lot of factors that would have probably, if even one of them had been changed, April 15th would just have been another night. We had the collision at Liverpool. If it had happened, Titanic would have been delayed 24 hours. That would have been the only noteworthy event on the trip. It would have been traveling faster or slower. It would have missed its appointment with that iceberg. If the sea had not been calm, it would have been seen at a further distance. If the ice report from the Californian had not been ignored, if the Californian's wireless operator had shut down 15 minutes later, he would have heard the first distress call. And they were 10 miles away. We can go on and on with this. But I think you're all probably now asking the question, what does the sinking of the Titanic have to do with ministry? There are a lot of similarities. Being a servant of God is a job, guys, not a volunteer position. Okay? Once we gave our lives to Christ, we signed up to be his servant. And as in any job, we are expected to do our best, doing all for the glory of God. If we look at 1 Corinthians 10.31, 1 
case we needed a little bit of pushing on this. Good. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As servants, he expects no less of us, and we should expect no less of ourselves. This verse tells us that no matter what we do, even the most mundane things, we are to do it for his glory. Whether it's making coffee, cleaning toilets, picking up trash, standing up here, talking to you guys, no matter what it is, we are to do all to the glory of God on all levels. Ministry is not just a hobby, something that we do in, in, to fill our time. It is a full-time job, even when we have a full-time job out in the real world. When we give ministry the attention it deserves, well, should everything run smoothly? It'd be nice. Do we ever have issues? Does everything move like clockwork according to plan? Well, not exactly. And we know this. We have to remember that nobody's perfect. Theodore Roosevelt had a very interesting quote. The only man who never makes a mistake is the man who never does anything. (laughs) Despite all our preparations and planning, despite all that we try to do and ensure success, sometimes things just don't go according to our plan. Dirt gets into the clockwork, and what seems like the makings of a glorious gift to the Lord suddenly becomes the greatest catastrophe since the Titanic. Now, tonight we're not talking about people who are sloppy in ministry. That's not the point of these chapters. These are people who basically don't put a lot into their ministry for a variety of reasons, and let's be honest, they don't stay long in ministry anyway. No, we're talking about those people that are dedicated heart and soul to the kingdom of God, to the work of his glory. And what happened? Something didn't work out. When this happens, we have to ask, what happened? natural. All of us know when we do something wrong, we're not going to sit there and say, oh, well, yeah, too bad. Nobody noticed it. If we noticed it, someone else did. Okay? We know this. What happened? How are we going to react to this failure? How we deal with these questions gives us an insight into ourselves and our own spiritual maturity. And occasionally we see things we don't like. But also... But we find the Lord is revealing blessings to us that we had not seen before and would never have seen if things had gone according to our plan. Now, when we look ourselves in the mirror after something like this, it's distasteful since it reveals that we are not perfect. I hate to really put that point, to belabor that point, I should say, but face it, we are not perfect. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there are none who speak, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, they have become, together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. One way of interpreting this verse is, well, let's just say it, nobody bats a thousand. Failure is always an option, unfortunately, because we are not perfect. However, How we deal with that favor is incredibly important. And deal with it we must. It is very easy to try to shuffle the blame off to somebody else for what happened. To give lots of excuses. And to make as if it wasn't my fault. But if we are walking close to the Lord, we generally own up to our own weaknesses. But on the same token, while it's never wise to take credit for a disaster, taking responsibility for our part is important. And then to proceed accordingly. 
probably, especially for first-timers that have been working a relatively short time in ministry, they plan something nice, they implement it, and it basically fails. The most common reaction, and even for old-timers, we feel it sometimes too, we want to quit. And sometimes we actually do it. Thomas Andrews, he built the Titanic, but he took personal responsibility for the fact that it failed. And to him, he was so crushed by it, he went down with the ship. He didn't even try to save himself. Granted, it was women and children first, but he didn't even try. To him, he didn't deserve to live. And that's really a, that's just really walking into Satan's hands. The enemy is real good at rubbing our noses and our mistakes, especially those involving ministry. Every one of us has the potential in Christ to making a big difference, even with just one single soul. And if we are somehow convinced that by failing once that we are a complete failure, then the enemy has won a victory. If we are convinced that God can never use somebody like me or that I'm worthless or I can't do this, well, we just raise our hands and say, sorry, Lord. And that's not an option. Let's look at a good example. It's a rather long section, but so I'll read it kind of to you. Apostle Peter. For example, when our Lord was talking about how everyone was going to forsake him, Peter pipes up. No, Lord, I don't care if everyone else forsakes you, I'm going to stay with you. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And I can imagine he's sitting there pounding his chest. Yeah, I can do that. No problem. Jesus just kind of looks at him. No, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. But Peter didn't get the hint. I mean, we're talking about the Son of God here. I think he knows what he's talking about. But Peter, he persists in saying, no, no, no. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. In fact, he goes around to the other disciples saying the same thing. Yeah, I could do it, I could do it. Talking about setting yourself up. <laughs> you know the story. Within a few hours, Peter denied him three times. But was that the end of the story? Thank God, no. It could have been. Peter, when he goes away and weeps bitterly, he could have been sitting there listening to Satan, mocking in his ear. Oh yeah, you're the rock, all right. You think God can use you now after what you've done? There you are, bragging up. To all your friends, all those wimps that you were not going to leave Christ and what happens. You not only deny him, you swear you never knew him. Oh yeah, that's what God really needs, a coward and a liar. Yep, you're really ready for this job. But again, what happened? No, Peter didn't listen to that. I'm sure those thoughts were going through his head. No, Peter, go to Acts 2, later, after Pentecost... Peter preaches a powerful sermon under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The results? Conversion of 3,000 souls. Yeah, he failed. But he didn't quit. He was back. And I'm sure in his back of his mind, he's saying, Thank you, Lord. My own power, I couldn't do this. But thanks to your spirit, your work is just beginning. Isn't that amazing? There's the key, guys. Working through the power of the Spirit throughout the book of Acts. You don't have time to go through it, but it's a fascinating study. We hear of believers doing amazing things through this power of the Spirit. 
And occasionally things did go wrong. Hey, the enemy's not going to give up without a fight. The apostles, they just kept going. Didn't matter what happened. Paul goes preaching, he gets stoned. They leave him for dead. What does he do? Gets up, brushes himself off, goes on the next town. I mean, to all points, that was a failure. It is true that the Lord does allow us to fail, even when everything seemed right on from the beginning, but he sometimes allows us to engineer our own failures. Okay? And in a number of ways. And tonight we're going to look at two. Two separate ones, but they're very much related. Now let's think back to the Titanic for a moment. The investigations following the sinking found out that even though Captain Smith seemed to all appearances to have been really, really reckless with his boat, they found out that this was actually normal operating procedure for all the ships in the North Atlantic. This was something everyone did and never had a problem with. Um, wireless operators. Hey, this was a new thing in 1912. They weren't even really sure what to do with them. They figured a lot of ship captains figured this is just a toy for our wealthy passengers to send you know, telegrams back and forth. They did transmit ICE reports and so forth, but a lot of times the people didn't, on board didn't know what to do with the reports when they got them. And a lot of ships didn't have radio. A lot of them only operated maybe 12 hours a day at the most. The lifeboat regulations, they came from the 1870s and didn't take into account reality, but no one ever questioned it because they're there. They've always been there. Think about that for a second. Doesn't that sound a bit familiar? We've always done it that way. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. This is a slogan of many a veteran Christian, if you think about it, both in and out of ministry, and I myself am guilty of this. We all have a tendency to look back at an era, at the era when we were saved. We look back with nostalgia, thinking, that was such a wonderful time. Man, the Lord really filled me. And, and we think about all the way we did things back then, the way we worshipped, the music we listened to. And then we tend to get a little uncomfortable when something new hits the scene. And we're not talking something unbiblical. We're just talking new. Let me give you an example. I call this going into default mode. When something comes along that you are not used to, and immediately you go back to a mode where, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. And it's not based on anything that's really truly wrong. It's just, it's different. We know that, let me give you an example from the Bible. We know this, it's happened since the beginning of the church. You think about Jesus' own ministry. The Jewish religious leaders were very much against it because it wasn't their tradition. It wasn't their rules. Jesus was, good grief, he was healing people on the Sabbath. Heaven's alive. Hey, how can you do this? He's, he's breaking the rules. He's helping a person. Yeah, yeah, but he's breaking the rules. We don't do it that way. We've never done that. We can't do it that way. In Acts 15, we see the early church grappling with a similar issue. 20 years after Pentecost, Jewish believers were starting to be a little overwhelmed by the fact that now there were probably more Gentile converts than there were Jewish converts, and so they fell into default mode. Oh, oh, we, we, you have to follow the law of Moses. Let's read Acts 15, verses 1 through 5. I'm afraid to put it down here. Oh, I'll read from up here. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, 
they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, all, they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This was a major issue. Not a friendly disagreement about the color of the carpeting in the sanctuary. That term, no small dissension and dispute could be rendered, argued forcefully and at length. This question had the potential to split the church. And as we read on in chapter 15, we get to see little bits and pieces of the debate. We see Peter's speech, we see uh, James's speech, and so forth. And we get to find out that a lot of times default mode kicks in because of ignorance. You don't really know what it is, so we're afraid of it. And once all the facts were laid out, when it became clear that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit without circumcision or the law, most of the Jerusalem church agreed with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. It's like, okay, you're right. They don't need to go through the law again. Peter was right. We can't force them to wear a yoke we could never wear ourselves. If the Holy Spirit came upon them, hey, it's salvation by grace. That's what Jesus said. We need to stick to that. Now, notice I said most of the church of Jerusalem. There are still a few that were not convinced. And unfortunately, whenever there's a problem in a church where you have people who basically say, no, this is not what I'm used to, basically they're saying, details, details, do not confuse me with facts. I'm not going to change. Don't try to make me. Modern day examples. I've seen this in many churches, and it's the most contention a lot of, in a lot of churches, and that's over worship. Something near and dear to this church's heart. Now, when I grew up, I grew up in a little four-square church in Pasadena, and so worship was with the pastor's wife, with her tambourine, leading songs from the hymnal, from the pulpit, accompanied by an organist, a real pipe organ, and a pianist. And the hymns that we sang were definitely written with those two instruments in mind. And we had beautiful worship, guys. We had worship there as powerful as anything we've ever had here. Okay? We had great songs. Such love. Beautiful song. We even don't hear anymore. It's just like such love, such wondrous love. If God could love a sinner such as I, how wonderful is love like this? No, I'm not going to sing it to you. <laughs> but I have it up here. I can still remember it. people raising their hands in worship, singing these old hymns. How great thou art. That was a new one. That came out in 1949. Okay. <laughs> All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bringing in the sheaves. Hey, oldie but goodie. That was one of my favorites, actually. But let's face it, most people these days don't know what a sheave is and how to bring it in anyway. But it was still a worship song. Then we had slow songs, contemplative ones, the ones that help us think about the beauty of, 
of, of salvation, of our, the sacrifice of our Lord. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. The old rugged cross. You still hear that one from time to time. The solid rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And come thou fount. Come thou fount of many blessings. It was a beautiful time. It was wonderful. And I was happy with it. And most of us were. But in the early 70s, things started to change a little bit. We were not talking about the little church down at the end of the lane, the little country church. We're talking about an era of time where it was major upheaval, major rebellion among the young people. And let's face it, they didn't know what a sheep was either. They couldn't relate to it. So what happens? We have the Jesus movement. And even in our church, a few of the little songs from the Jesus movement were starting to come in. Like, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Have you ever heard that one? Okay. That's, I remember that one because that was the first one that came to our church. Okay. Beautiful song. Just simple verses, basically, are out of the Bible. And we took it. I mean, we were a four-square church. We were open to that kind of thing, as long as we didn't bring in the drums or the electric guitar. If someone played a guitar, that was fine, as long as they did it right. Okay? Because there's an opinion among a lot of our people. Drums and guitars, they're the instruments of the devil. We don't want that rock and roll creeping into our church. Fortunately, we had a church leadership that was a little more open, but most of the congregation, no, this is nothing. We don't want this. One, one case of another church that my first wife had attended, and I was there when this happened, was the pastor wanted to bring more of this in. Now, this is now the 1980s. Okay, You'd think that some churches would have caught on. No. All he had was a fellow come in with a guitar at the before service started, playing worship songs like we sing here. No, no drums, just plain old guitar, singing, this is the day that the Lord has made. You know, all these other ones that we're familiar with. You would think the guy was playing selections from Black Sabbath, compared to if you listen to the congregation complain. They call it banjo music. We don't want that music here. Really, to be honest, the pastor, when he was hearing these complaints, should have said, let's open our books, our Bibles, to Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute, guitar, and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, if there's any further doubt, consider the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 5, 11 and 14. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place for all the priests were present, who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. And the Levites, who were the singers, and all those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, 
And their sons and their brethren stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, land and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Talk about a noisy worship service. And they didn't even have, a, have speakers to do that. Yeah? Worship's meant to be noisy. Problem is, we have to be really aware of the culture to which we're ministering. We are missionaries to a world totally different from what we're used to, for what we think we know, or what we may know. However, there is a term that really has a bad connotation to it. It is referred to as cultural relevance. To some people, this term smacks of compromise. You're diluting the gospel. And as a result, they're defending their resistance to change based on this viewpoint that, no, we cannot succumb to cultural relevance. Now, it's true that much has entered the church under guise of this cultural relevance. And then that stuff has no business being there. And I've been to places where you have churches that set up an overflow area that looks more like a Starbucks than a church. And if you come a little late, well, you just grab a latte and your lunch, sit down, and on the screen, watch the sermon. Really? Okay? And the sermon is usually based on the pastor's latest self-help book or some other thing that really tickles the ears. Okay? Or consider, and this is a true story. I heard this at a conference a couple weeks ago. Consider a church that one Sunday decided to do a Star Wars theme. Yeah, the ushers dressed up like C-3PO or Chewbacca. (laughs) While the pastor came out to do his sermon dressed as Han Solo. (laughs) Well, next Sunday. (laughs) This is not cultural relevance if the Bible sees it. No, the Bible sees it. If we just look at the book of Acts, guys. Paul, probably your best example. He's all things to all men. When he was giving a sermon to the Jews, he quoted extensively out of the Old Testament because the Jews knew that was the word of God. And if you can prove it from the Old Testament, then we know it's true. Okay. On the other hand, when he went to the Gentiles, he didn't mention the Old Testament at all because it meant nothing to the Gentiles. Instead, he took the point of view that God is the creator of the, of the world and how he loves them, and basically went to them at their level, even sometimes quoting Greek poets that were real popular in that day. This is cultural relevance, understanding what's happening. When we're reaching out to a younger generation, we are missionaries to that younger generation. We have to learn the language. We have to understand their culture. We have to figure out what makes them tick. But we cannot compromise the gospel. No, that's not part of it. But we make the gospel so they understand it. So they will say, oh yeah, that's not just what my old folks do. That's something that applies directly to me. And churches that fail in this are doomed to extinction because they lose their young people. Their young people vanish. 
They either go to other churches that will feed them, or they turn their back to the to their uh, to the faith and say they want nothing to do with me, and I want nothing to do with them. See, as older Christians, we're meant to be mentors. We're meant to help these guys along, not smack them down because we disagree with them. Titus 2, verses 2 and 3 says, The older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and in patience, and the older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wise, teachers of good things. We have to bridge that generational gap from our end. Because that's our future. That is the church's future. As a result, we never really retire from ministry. Okay, now, there's very few of us that are close to that. But there are times when as we get older and older and older, yeah, there is going to be a time when we can't do the things we used to do. Okay? We can't do a sermon three, four times a week. Okay? We can't lead worship and do something else at the same time. We have to pass it on to the younger folk. That has to happen. And it only makes it easier if we trust them. God raised them up to be the next leaders, and we have to recognize that they are, they are the leaders. But by the same token, the prejudice is by no means one-sided. The younger generation views us oftentimes as out of touch with reality, and many times they're right. Instead of reaching out, though, to try to bridge the gap... They actually compound the problem by ignoring the counsel of their elders or being downright hostile to anything older than they are. I actually know people that, well, if it's, you know, you've probably heard this from years ago, don't trust anyone over 30. Okay? I notice now that they're all over 30. So I mean, what is it? Don't trust anybody over 80? That's easy. There's not many people out there that way. But the point is, they already immediately look at us as the, as the enemy, at the older folk as the enemy. And it's through, sometimes it's through no fault of their own. It's just the new culture. And that's wrong. Sorry, young guys, that is wrong. Because we're supposed to basically live by Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Speaking of worship, I actually knew a guy who did not like the old hymns. This was at a Calvary Chapel. And he complained, hey, we don't understand the words. Why are we singing it? And when we actually had some old hymns in worship, he refused to sing with them. Well, my opinion was, join the other folks that refuse to sing, sing hallelujah to the Lord. You guys should get along just fine because that's a new song. And they feel like you too. Bad attitude. We're mentors, the older guys. But the younger kids have to be, want to be mentored and that's how we have to approach them. We want to help you, they want to help us. It's worth repeating again. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's not us. It's not them. It's all about the Lord. And the sooner we figure this out, our church will continue on and on and on as long as the Lord tarries. The older generation passing the baton to the younger generation. That's my prayer. And it should be all of ours. 
I like how Wiersbe gives four points to those young men in service. However, all of us should really take heed to those four points. It was in the book, but I put them up here as well. And I'll add a little bit of my own. Number one, never take down a fence until you know why it was put up. Okay? Change just for the sake of change really works. People who have been in ministry longer than, than a, another person usually have a reason for why they do things a certain way. Now, maybe it's because we've always done it that way, but we need to search in why was it that way? Why is it we chose this instead of this? Now, you just don't go barging in saying, okay, come on, you dummy, let me figure this out for you and I'll solve your problems. No, you prayerfully and respectfully look into the thing and you may find out, oh, man, these old guys knew what they were doing. That makes perfect sense. Number two, if you get too far ahead of the army, your soldiers may mistake you for the enemy. Yeah. Change is done on God's timing, not ours. Getting ahead of the Lord is just as bad as getting in his way. And again, if you try something that's too outlandish, you are going to have a lot of people saying, uh-uh, ain't going to happen. The Lord will ease a church into change the way he wants to. Like I said, don't be in the way. But don't be too far ahead. Number three. Don't complain about the bottom rungs of the ladder. They help to get you higher. Impatience in ministry is a sign of spiritual immaturity. 1 Timothy 3.6 tells us, all of us, excuse me, tells us, and again, that one blanked out. An elder must not be a new Christian because he might be proud of being chosen so soon, and then the devil will use that pride to make him fall. A person who thinks he can do something better than anybody else, maybe he can. The Lord's not going to let him work that way until he realizes, I'm just a servant. There are a lot of people I know, I've seen them, and I'll be honest, a long time ago I was one of them, who would sit while someone like me was up here droning on, thinking, I could do a better job than him. Maybe I could. But at that point, I couldn't. The Lord wouldn't let me. It would turn into a big failure. And so we closed the circle again. Oops, excuse me. Then we go to number four. Get there. If you want to enjoy the rainbow, be prepared to endure the storm. Trials and tribulations are going to happen, and that includes failures and success. Lord wants to make us into what He wants us to be, not what we want to be. What we want to be is for Him, His servant. Without reservation. The definition of a servant is not someone who calls the shots. It's someone who is completely subservient to the person in which he is serving. Okay, bad definition, but basically it makes the point. God is going to make us into whatever he wants. We are clay. And it's kind of coincidental that next week we're going to see Potter's Field. And we see this demonstrated. We will see this demonstrated before our eyes. We are clay. The Lord is the potter. And a lot of times, think about what a potter does to that clay and then put yourself in that very place. It's not pretty sometimes. But there's a reason. Because he wants to make us into that perfect vessel. 
But before we close, I want to introduce you to your own harshest critic, that person in the mirror that stares at you you every morning. When something goes wrong, we know it. We say it to ourselves. We even beat ourselves up for it. But sometimes in doing so, we miss a really important point. People will labor for years in ministry and never see any fruit. You may think that everything you do is a failure because you never see anything coming from it. A mature believer knows this, accepts it, and he keeps on moving. Those not so mature in the faith will keep moving, but they get discouraged. And the Lord will occasionally drop a little hint, no, it's not in vain. Because the Lord doesn't do anything in vain. You see, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. When you plant a seed, you don't see what's happening underground. You don't see what's going on there. When you've talked to someone years ago, you don't know what happens when you've parted ways. Sometimes we are never going to know until we get to heaven. And then we may be surprised in what exactly we did. But at that point, it doesn't matter. The Lord will be pleased with us because we did what he told us to do. We were faithful. Brothers, we are on the Titanic. This world is sinking. We're ministers of Christ. We should be doing all we can to alert our fellow passengers of the danger, pounding on doors, getting the lifeboats ready, showing people where they should go to get to the boats, and getting ready to lower them to safety. That is our sacred duty as spiritual officers and spiritual laborers on this ship. There are those of us who have been seasoned veterans of the sea for a long time. We basically are telling others what to do and trying to keep things calm. We've got the laborers, the strong backs that are doing all the heavy labors. And then we have the young ones that are so overwhelmed by what's happening, they're practically, I can't do this. And then the older ones are pushing them along. They stick to their duties. It is not an easy task, and we don't have a lot of time left. This time, though, there's enough lifeboats for everybody. However, just like on that faithful night 100 years ago, there are those who are not going to see the danger. There are those who don't want to be disturbed. There are those that refuse to get into a lifeboat because it seems so foolish to trust their lives in this little tiny boat on the ocean when that big boat behind us still seems to be okay. There are those that won't get in unless their friends get in. Sound familiar? We hear it all the time. When we see this, to us it's going to seem like a whole series of failures. The loved ones we've prayed for, sometimes even our own children who look like they're about to get in and turn away at the last minute. Knowing that soon they're going to be slipping into eternity. There's going to be people who are stuck on the lower decks because we don't have enough crew to go down and get them to speak their language and to show them the way up. Unless we have purposely neglected our duty, though, these are not failures. We cannot control what someone does. If they don't want to get on the lifeboat, there's nothing we can do about it. Only pray. And I assure those crew on the Titanic prayed a lot that night. Don't focus on the failures, guys. Look at who's in the lifeboats. Look at who's there, who heeded the words of everybody around you. People that you didn't even know that may have been watching you from afar thinking, I like what he does, he knows what he's doing. And when the warning came, yes, I followed because I knew you were going to lead me the right way. The witness of our lives. People that maybe you haven't talked to in years, suddenly, boom, there they are. 
That's the victory we look for. Heaven rejoices when one single soul comes to repentance. One single soul to salvation. We need to rejoice as well. Because there isn't a lot of time left. But when the time comes, we will be able to stand before our Lord. We will not be ashamed. And we will have done our job. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of your word. And we thank you for that honor of being your servants. And as we've seen, this is a tough task. This is something we can't do on our own power. But through you, we can do anything. But at the same time, we are only human. We know we're going to make mistakes. Father, see us through those mistakes. Thank you for forgiving us ahead for when we err because we are not following your will. Help us to receive those lessons that you've given to us because you want to make us better men, better servants. And most of all, Father, give us the strength, the wisdom to do our jobs as your servants, to reach out to a lost world, to save souls, because you don't want anyone to perish. That's why there's enough lifeboats for everyone, Father. We praise you and we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.